If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and Jim will give you one. You can take your Bibles and or your devices. If you got both, that'd be, God would be really impressed. You know, the larger your Bible, the more spiritual you are. So if you're using a mobile device and a big Bible, God is like really impressed. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I appreciate Darren and everybody working with us today. I know that's hard, hard to do. But again, you put Peter down and pray for him and his family. That's a tough deal to go through. But our God is real. That's, there are two times in your life you find out that God is very real to you. One is when death is involved, and the other is when families get involved in money. That's when you really find out where you are spiritually. And so you pray for, for Peter and his family. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's what we're going to do today. We're doing a follow-up on where we were last week as we were looking at Antioch. I know you're wondering, why are we not in the book of Acts and you really miss it? Uh, we'll get back. So as we were looking at, at Antioch as the model church, we had looked at it in several arenas, evangelism, discipleship, leadership, and then last week we were looking at stewardship. Well, what we're going to look at today is the end of that and a, kind of a follow-up on understanding stewardship from God's perspective. Now, here's what I want you to do. Look at me real close for a minute. This is the subject of stewardship. And what we're going to look at today is giving by grace. We're going to look at the New Testament principles on how God looks at giving. But here's what's fascinating about it more than anything else as we walk through this, that you're going to see in this, these two chapters in the book of 2 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul is addressing the church at Corinth, which was immature, fleshly, uh, struggled in all kinds of ways, very much uh, spiritually not where they needed to be, a very uh, uh, fleshly, for lack of a better term, church. As he addresses them on the subject of giving, he does not one time mention money. Well, you're thinking, well, how in West Memphis did he do that? Well, number one, he didn't know about West Memphis, so that was probably his biggest issue. He'd never been to the dog tracks. He does not mention money. Here's what I want you to take away from this, and it was so great for me to study it again over the last couple of weeks and really focus in on exactly what the scriptures say, not what we heard at church and not working on hiding my wallet from the elders. All they're trying to do is fleece the flock. Well, since you're sheep, I think that's probably an apropos metaphor. We're here to fleece the flock. That preachers are only interested in money. That's all they ever talk about. Well, Jesus spent more time talking on this subject than any other subject he talked on. Maybe more than all the others combined on this subject. And here's why. Here's what I want you to take out of looking at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It is not about money. It is not about how much you give to the church. It is not about how big a check you can write and are you writing one? Are you giving anything at all? Comparing yourself to someone else. It is not about that at all. The principles we're going to see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are about a spiritual discipline. And the reason Jesus spent so much time talking about this subject was it is, and I will say it again, I've shared this briefly with you before, about my own life, 
that it is the one arena in most of our lives that we really struggle to give back to God and let him be Lord over our finances, our bank accounts, our income, our resources. Here's what we have to understand about the giving by grace. It's a result of having experienced grace. If you're born again, you've experienced grace. If you're in Christ, you've experienced grace. We're going to talk a lot about that. So I want to make sure more than anything else as we begin to look at this. Giving is an act of grace. It's a spiritual discipline. It's not about an amount. It's not about writing a check. It's not about paying the bills of the church. And and I I say that self-serving because I am one of the bills of the church. I are one of them. So you have to look at all the principal scriptures teach and put them all together. That's why you want to let the Bible say what it says. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. So I'm going to say something now that's very radical. And it's going to drive some of you crazy. It is not about 10%. It is not about a tithe. It is not about, ooh, I gave 10%. I'm good. I'm great. Kind of like your IRA. I put that money in. It's done. I'm good with God. I gave 10%. No. It's a spiritual discipline. For example, you've been given spiritual gifts. It might be teaching. It might be serving. It might be faith. It might be mercy. Whatever your spiritual gift is, God gave you that gift to exercise on behalf of the body of Christ. You've been given talents. For example, Darren can sing and play guitar, and Peter can play keyboard and can sing, and like my daughter Beth can sing, the, the sweet ladies of her day can sing, and my wife can. Uh, I love her. I walk in the house, we have a piano that's, that's older than, than both of us, and she's sitting there playing the piano and just singing old hymns, and, I'm thinking, and I love to just sit there and listen. I wish I could do that. I, it's not one of my talents. Here's the point. That talent was given to Mary, given to Darren, given to Peter, given to Beth, given to others. Those talents, I have other talents. I don't know what they are, but I got them somewhere. Every believer has spiritual gifts, usually more than one. And giving, please again, it's just kind of radical, so look at me. Giving, according to the New Testament, God's word is a spiritual gift. There are people that God gives the gift of giving. And you're thinking, I pray to God that ain't one of me, that I ain't one of them. He talks about the uh, faith is a spiritual gift. How many of us are supposed to have faith? Raise your hand. Okay, that's good. All of us are supposed to have faith, but not all of us have the gift of faith. It's a different, we're not going to preach on that today, so just we'll set that aside. Not all of us have the gift of mercy. Some are better at sharing mercy than others, but how many of us should be merciful? All of us. Not all of us have the gift of giving, but how many of us should give? Okay, I didn't see some hands. Did you write down the ones that... We're all givers. And that's the point. Because what it comes down to is you have to understand these principles. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is going to teach us how to give... By grace. How to give God's way. By grace. With generosity. Being genuine. And not even talking about money. 
See, the problem at the church at Corinth was they had the resources. God had blessed them. Trade route. And it, they had the resources. What they did not have is the motive. Grace giving is simply about your heart. Not about your wallet. Not about your bank account. It is about surrendering every area of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do with my talent here and my gift here? And Lord, with your resources that you've allowed to come into my life because you own all of me, Romans 12, 1, you give your body's a living sacrifice. All that is you belongs to God as a believer, including your finances, what God brings into your possession to manage for him. That's where the word stewardship comes from. It's by grace you give it back to him. Because the church in America today doesn't understand giving this way. And you know why most people in church don't understand giving this way? Because preachers have lied to them about what giving is about. Preachers have manipulated people to give. They have twisted scripture to say what it does not say to get people to give more money. There are organizations, church organizations, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ that literally tax their members. We're voting on that next week. I don't know how that will come down, but they literally charge them a tax. What do you think that tax percentage might be? Take a guess. 10%. Because they think that's biblical. Sounds good, right? Sounds biblical, but it ain't spiritual. It ain't what God intended What God intends is not for 10% of your giving mindset. How much does he expect? 100%. No, whoa, 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 back up. What are you talking about? It's a spiritual discipline that God lays on your heart. I want to help with this, and I want to help with that. And, And no, not everybody's going to give the same amount because not everybody has the same amount of money coming into their home. But how many of us should have that heart attitude? All of us. That it's not mine. It's God's. That in America we give for the wrong reasons. Again, many times because we've been lied to. We think that if I give this much, because you've got false teachers, and uh, uh, i got to stop watching false teachers. That's probably why I don't have any, more, any hair anymore. But say to people, look, if you just send me much, this much money as a seed, vow, faith, I guarantee you God will give you back a hundredfold. It says it right here in Scripture. That's not what it says. You have to let the Bible say what it says. All belongs. So here's the point. It's about grace. I know you've heard this, but it's really apropos for this moment. The little acronym, acrostic, whichever term you want to use for grace. G-R-A-C-E. Which is real popular in the church to say that stands for what? God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's true. God gave you the riches of heaven... In the person of Jesus Christ, who paid your debt, who rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, conquered sin and death, and as we shall see, made you rich through his poverty, going to the cross, sacrificing himself so that you might be rich. Do you think that's talking about money? Of course not. Yet, there are preachers who manipulate with that. No, it's talking about you being able to be rich spiritually and one of the disciplines of being rich spiritually because you've been made rich spiritually through Jesus' poverty is that you're a giver. 
of your talent, your time, and yes, your treasure that God brings through you. He equips you. Our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Part of that, that discipline is giving. I read a great sermon on this this week of a guy who passed away years ago. It was a very powerful sermon. It was very convicting to me. Here was his principle, the basis of his sermon. If God has done nothing for you, then don't give him a dime. If you want to make it on you know, a strictly business perspective. If God has done zero for you, give him what? Zero. Now let's be real. How much has God done for you? Everything. So what does God want in return? All of you. I've said it this way many times, and I believe this with all my heart. When God reached down in, in uh, April of 1970 and, and saved Randy Locke, he's a 16-year-old, typical 16-year-old knucklehead boy. And the guy sat down in a in church setting with me and shared the gospel, and I was saved. If God checked out of my life and I never heard from him again, in any capacity whatsoever. That's what deists believe, by the way. God just stepped out of the way, and I never heard from him again. What should be my attitude toward God every single day? Gratitude. Gratitude. Because what did he give me April 19th, 1970, which he had known about for all eternity, that imbued in my life, empowered me when I accepted Christ as my Savior. And he said to me, you are born again, I give you eternal life. When you die, you get to go to heaven and... I'm going to take care of you. What did he give me that day? Everything a human being could desire. Peace, hope, and the knowledge that death would be the best day of my life, according to his word. Whoa, man. Glory, hallelujah. You see, that's what it means to be saved. Not, you know, Lord, I believe that this is what you should do. Now, would you please bless what Randy thinks you should do? That's not faith. That's presumption. You don't tell God what to do. You thank him for what he has done and say, all right, Lord, I'm in. What do you want me to do? I'm all, I'm joining up. So as we look at these principles, the idea is this. If God has been good to me, then cheerfully, the number one principle in scripture about giving If you miss everything else I say today, which you probably will, get this. God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because he cheerfully gave for you. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. When we were his enemies, he died for us. On and on and on. The gospel. So cheerfully, here's the principle, overarching principle. Cheerfully... Allow me, God, to be part of what you're doing. Let me participate. Beg to be part of what you're doing. I willingly want to join in to see the kingdom spread. It's not about tithing. It's not about amounts. It's about me, Lord. Take me, use me, and allow me. Please let me participate in what you're doing. Let me participate in what you're doing. Giving is for Randy or you spiritually to benefit. Apostle Paul put it this way when he wrote to the church at Philippi. Even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again for for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. 
Sure hope you heard that. I love the little book of Philippians. You ought to read it once a week. It'll take you about 10 minutes. Just read it. Just read it. Four chapters, two pages. I read it all the time just to be encouraged. The theme of it is rejoice in your circumstances no matter how bad they might be. Because as he wrote those words, he expected to have his head chopped off at any moment. That's pretty cool. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You see what he just said to them? Over and over again, you gave to me when I was at Thessalonica and needed help. Nobody else would, but you did. And here's what he said. Please get this. Not that I want the gift or even seek the gift. Paul was saying to the Christians at Philippi, he's saying, but I'm excited about you giving because you will benefit. Not you're going to get more money because you gave money. that, That theology is so messed up. That's not it at all. It's that you're going to grow spiritually because you give cheerfully. You're going to grow. You're going to be everything God wanted you to be. Look at the bottom of your outline. I know it's kind of reversed. I want you to look at the very bottom of your outline. In case we don't get there today, which is very likely knowing me. I want you to see three things down there. Talks about not giving, not to be mad. You see that? At the very bottom. Not sad. Not mad. But, take a guess. Glad. You don't give because somebody, and the the words are there in the scriptures, you can see it for yourself. Hopefully we'll get there. You're not sad. You're not mad. You're glad. You want to. You're excited about it. You thank God that he's made it possible for you to impact the lives of others. That's what Paul was talking talking about with the church at Philippi, the fruit that abounds to your account. All right, go to 2 Corinthians 8. Let's look at the context, and then we're going to jump in. As you get to 2 Corinthians 8, here we are in history. This is what's going on. The church at Jerusalem was in extreme poverty. Now, Corinth is not Jerusalem. It's a Gentile place. Hang on to that. The church at Jerusalem was made up primarily of pilgrims, Hellenistic Jews, who from the diaspora, the scattering, who had come to Jerusalem. And here's how it came about. On the day of Pentecost, we studied earlier in the book of Acts, Thousands upon thousands came to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Over 3,000 of them were saved that day, the day day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell. Over 3,000 men, don't tell them how many people total, were born again. But they were from all over the place. Just listen to where they were from. This is from Acts chapter 2. Parthians and Medes and Elamites those in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. All of those people, they flocked Jews, Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Jews, had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They were saved. Within a short period of time, another 5,000, another 2,000, they grew to 5,000 almost immediately. Here's what's so cool about what was going on. One of the reasons the church ends up in such poverty. God saves them, but that doesn't mean their circumstances were great. Things change. Thousands upon thousands of them have come to Pentecost, gotten saved. How many churches exist in the rest of the world at this point in time in history? None. Be like the only one in town. They were the only one in the world. 
So these new followers of Jesus of Nazareth as the way, they weren't even called Christians yet. They're following Jesus. They've come to him as Jews. He is the Messiah. They have been born again. And the apostles are at Jerusalem. So what do they choose to do? Stay. To be taught by the apostles. To be discipled. Remember the Great Commission? How did Jesus put it? Go into all the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. All the nations starts right here. So they're all at Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands. They're being discipled. Being taught by the apostles. But then they began to be persecuted. Why? Because they're Jews that have left their faith. They've left their family. They're with fellow believers. But they become alienated from their families, from the ability to earn wealth. They can't keep jobs. Nobody will deal with them because they're considered traitors. They've gone over to the Jesus side. They've left the Pharisees. They've left the, the Jews. They've left their ancestry and their families even alienated. So they have no place to stay except the church has to take care of them. The Apostles' Fellowship. That's why the book of Acts says they continued in the, the Apostles' Fellowship and doctrine. They taught them. They took care of them. There's tons upon tons and thousands of them. Jesus earlier in the Upper Room Discourse, incredible passage in John 13 through 17, had predicted this in John 16. He said these words to those 11 guys in that room. They will put you out of the synagogues. They were all Jews. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. That's what the apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, that's what he did for a living. He persecuted these people, had them in prison, had them killed, and he considered it his religious duty to do so. They considered it a godly thing to persecute followers of Jesus and kill them excommunicate them, kill them if possible. So they're being persecuted unmercifully. There's thousands of them. And then you've got a really poor economy in Judea because of the Romans. The Romans just simply came in, they took it over, and anything that was of value, they took. And then what was left, what did they do with that? They taxed it. You think taxes are bad in our country? They taxed it. They taxed it, and they taxed it. That's why... It's really interesting when Jesus is picking his disciples and one of them is a guy named Matthew. What did everybody else say about Matthew? Whoa, whoa, he's a tax collector. and a, We don't need him. He worked for the Romans, collecting taxes from us. Jesus had a big, bigger picture in mind, didn't he? He always does. So he picks Matthew. So here we are back to 2 Corinthians 8. That's the setting in Jerusalem, Judea, surrounding area. So Paul, the Apostle Paul now, determines he's going to take a relief offering to the church at Jerusalem from the Gentiles, the Christians, in Asia Minor and Europe. Please hang with me for a moment. Paul is the Apostle to the Gentiles. The ones that are suffering in Jerusalem and Judea are Jews. That's where the need is, in extreme poverty. Paul says, I'm going to take up an offering from the Gentiles for the Jews, he had two motives in mind. One, they were hurting, and he wanted to help. That's what Christians do for fellow believers and even for non-believers. But his primary motive, 
or his other motive. I don't know that it was even more, it wasn't more important, but it was equally important to Paul. Was to strengthen the unity of the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Because it had been a Jewish thing for so long. We talked about that over and over. And now it's going to all the world and these Gentiles are getting saved. There's jealousy, there's suspicion, there's even hatred still going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. They just don't like each other. It'd be like University of Memphis playing Kentucky. Just, I was in a quandary yesterday watching that game. Who do I root for, John Calipari or the Orange? It was hard, and I won't tell you which one. It was hard. They just didn't like each other. The Jews and the Gentiles, in many cases, hated each other, were suspicious. And Paul wanted to solidify their unity. He wrote these words to the church at Ephesus. Jesus himself is our peace. He's made both one, Jews and Gentiles. He's broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Not a Jew or a Gentile, but a Christian. You see that? This is radical, historically, an important moment. From the two, thus making peace, that he, Jesus, might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and and to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Very powerful. The entire book of Ephesians is about the church, what it really is, what it should be. And we've been looking at Antioch as that model. You hear so much talk about peace here and peace here. You know how our world can have peace? Just told you in that verse, through the cross. Through the cross. You're not getting it anywhere else. You might get a pseudo peace and you might get this, you might get that. But I'm never going to love someone that I've hated my whole life until Jesus changes me. That's how I become a new man, in him. So the church at Corinth, they had promised, look at chapter 8, verse 10, 8, 10. In this I give advice, the apostle Paul says, it is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. A year ago, And I love this because so many times this is what happens in our lives. A year ago, when Paul said, I'm going to take up this offering of relief to go to the Christians at Jerusalem, the church at Corinth said what? We're in. Count us in. We want to be part of that. What have they not done? They hadn't followed through. They said, Lord, we're in. Paul, we're in. We'll give. How much did they had they given? Nothing. They didn't follow through. It's a spiritual discipline. But they didn't follow through. So Paul, now, here's what we're going to see in chapters 8 and 9. This is what Paul does. He writes to them, saying, no, a year ago you said you were going to be part of this, and you hadn't followed through. So in chapters 8 and 9, he's going to give them an example of some people that followed through. The Macedonian churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. He said, they followed through. 
So let's look at what they did, how they gave by grace. So now, you can get, now we're on your handout. I didn't take but 20 minutes to get to the handout. That wasn't bad. All right, look at the handout. How did they give? What's giving by grace about? Number one, chapter eight, you give enthusiastically. You give enthusiastically. Chapter eight, verse one. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. You want to give enthusiastically. That's number one on your handout. Bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. One more time. That's Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Here's the picture, and here's what's going to, everything you're going to see in chapters 8 and 9 flows from this picture. So I want to mention it one more time. Notice verse 1. Made known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. They had experienced grace. They were born again. Believers in the local churches, they were Christians, Christ followers. They had experienced grace, God's goodness to them. They'd experienced it, and so they were moved by grace to be part of the offering. No excuses. They considered it a privilege to be part of what God was doing. So notice on your handout, first thing, you give enthusiastically despite their circumstances. Despite your circumstances, notice verse 2. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded. Fix my microphone so I can make it even louder. See if that helps. All right. Verse 2. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Great Trial of affliction. Despite their circumstances, the Greek phrase for a great trial of affliction means an extreme pressure. The phrase that's used there to describe their affliction, it would be like you taking grapes, putting them in a wine press, and crushing them down to get wine. That's the word that's used. That's what was going on in the churches at Macedonia. Tremendous pressure and persecution, yet... In this great trial, notice that phrase in verse 2, it's beautiful, that in a great trial of affliction, being pressed like grapes in, in, a, in a wine press, everything out of you, notice how he describes them. Abundance of their joy. The Greek word abundance there means surplus. They didn't have a surplus of money what did, notice the phrase, the context. What did they have a surplus of? Joy. In a great trial of affliction being crushed to death, they had joy. You see what grace will give to you? Grace sets you free. Grace is a gift of God that you don't deserve, you can't earn, you can't buy. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God's goodness to you. So because of grace... Their joy transcended all the difficulty around them, and they were joyful that they could give. Notice the next phrase, in deep poverty. Deep poverty. The phrase in Greek means rock-bottom destitute with no hope. It was used to describe beggars. Just no hope. Yet, notice the phrase again, verse 2, Their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So if they're in deep poverty, 
and they're being liberal with their riches, it's not talking about money. They don't have any. But they're giving what they do have, whatever they could give as part of that offering. They wanted to liberally give, like the widow's might picture. Despite the fact they were in deep poverty themselves, they wanted to help their Jewish brethren. How would the Jews that hated them prior? They did not like each other, but Christ had changed them. The churches at Macedonia. This phrase, riches, I want to read you some passages written by the Apostle Paul concerning riches. He uses the word in every one of these passages. So just listen, if you would. In Colossians chapter 1, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, those riches. Colossians 2, their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Riches, nothing to do with money, spiritual understanding, knowledge about God, who he is, what he's doing. Ephesians 1, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What you have, who you are. Philippians 4 Indeed, I have all and I abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You ever hear anybody preach that and say it's about money? Over and over again. It's not about money. It's about being rich spiritually. Riches. Ephesians 3. Paul writes about himself. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. These are the riches that the church wants to share with people. And yes, it involves giving. Because through the process of giving, you get to share the riches of Christ. And others get to share the riches of Christ, all these under, uh, mysteries, all the depth, the inheritance that we have in Christ, who we are, what it means to know grace, have grace infused in your life, experience, to be born again, to know Christ. All of those things are part of the riches. So despite your circumstances, you want to give. But look at verse 3. You look at it as a privilege. Verse 3. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. Paul says, I bear witness. In other words, I saw it. I personally experienced this. I was there. Verse 3, according to their ability, that means each individual wanted to be part of this, according to their ability, and yes, even beyond their ability, that they didn't have much, they sacrificed freely willing, personal choice. No coercion, no twisting of arms, no manipulation, just simply sharing a need. And because they'd experienced grace, they wanted to help meet that need. You didn't have to talk them into it. 
guilt them into it, beat them up, put thermometers on the wall so that they'll reach this goal. You just shared the need and they were moved by the Holy Spirit, the grace bestowed on them. They wanted to help. Notice verse 3 again. I think it's 3, make sure. No, verse 4, excuse me. Imploring us with much urgency. In other words, they were poor and they knew about the need and Paul really didn't even want to share with them. They were so poor. You see what it says in verse 4? They begged Paul, please let us give. We have that happen to us all the time. They just lined up. Please let us give. They were poor. He wasn't even going to ask them. Please, we want to be part of fellowship, sharing in common with the other saints, those Jews, what you're doing for them. We want to be part of that, please. Fellowship of the saints. You get the word, our word grace, Greek word grace is in there. I apologize, I keep trying to break this microphone. All right, second 